Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. I got nothing this week. No, me neither. Not a thing. Nope. Nothing interesting has happened. Nope. We haven't done anything comic-related. Nope. I mean, I've read comics quite a bit. Always do. Yeah, but nothing particularly exciting. So should we just go straight to emails? Yep. <laughs> Got a couple of emails to cover. Chris Franklin has emailed it with the Swamp Stalkers. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Christopher. I enjoyed your final foray into funk. <laughs> I had long heard Tomb of Dracula was the bee's knees, and being a fan of classic horror a la Universal and Hammer, I picked up the Essential Volume 1 for cheap a few years ago. I have to say the series lived up to the hype and it didn't take long for me to devour that volume and the second one as soon as I bought it. I haven't bought the others yet, mostly because I haven't found them in the wild and there is just something satisfying about finding a book on a shelf, but I may have to break down soon and buy the rest. The story you examined was a standout. Hannibal King did indeed appear in Blade 3, played by none other than everybody's not-so-favourite Green Lantern, Ryan Reynolds. As for the Swampies, they all borrow heavily from Theodore Sturgeon's It short story from the 40s, as well as the Heap comic character you mentioned. I always preferred Swamp Thing, but that is probably due to the movie and being more of a DC guy. By the late 1980s, my ex-brother-in-law had a complete run of Swamp Thing appearances and let me read them. I actually preferred the Ween rights and stuff but the more material may have been a bit over my head at the time. I think Mr. E's identity is revealed in the issue where Batman guessed it, issue 8, I think. The other Mr. E was indeed a DC-creative character and part of the trench coat brigade in the books of magic, as Michael suggested. I believe he even tries to kill Tim Hunter. Maybe he worked for J.K. Rowling. I really don't know much about Man-Thing, but your synopsis intrigues me. Gray Morrow was a fantastic artist, and he dabbled in comics while doing tons of other genre-related commercial art. He painted the awesome poster for the underwhelming Dracula vs. Frankenstein from America International Pictures, the one where Drac has an afro and Frankenstein's monster has a shoebox glued to his head. Do you know, I don't think I've seen that. I mean, either. I think I'd remember. It sounds quality. It does, doesn't it? He also painted the box artwork for Mego's Mad Monster action figure series. Whenever he drew superheroes, he made them look like real people in costumes, kind of a graphite Alex Ross in a way. I do believe he committed suicide a few years back. Tragic loss, for sure. Bit of a downer as well. Yeah. <laughs> but this show that doesn't really take too much that seriously. Looking forward to your examination of Hush. It sure is pretty, but kind of vacant where the story is concerned as I recall and I do like that he he quoted uh, the Sex Pistols though I do hope that was intentional we should have put that at the end of the show shouldn't we Pretty Vacant would have been a perfect closing song for Hush if only we got that email yeah well I did get that email well yeah but (laughs) obviously I read it before Hush you know what I mean I forgot more than likely that's more than likely yeah I think that's probably 
Very likely. Bobby Coakley emailed in with those 70s shows. Hey, Leylands. Hey, Bobby. You both did a great job reviewing the 1970s. Here are a few points. Giant Size X-Men number one. The mob attacking Nightcrawler wasn't doing so just because of his appearance. They thought he was responsible for a series of murders that had actually been committed by Kurt Wagner's foster brother, Stefan Zardoz, who had gone insane. And Stefan had just died in a fight with Kurt when the mob found them. Uncanny X-Men annual number four and Marvel Comics presents issue 101 through 108 cover this. But that's a retcon, Bobby! Surely! It wasn't in the story we reviewed, was it? It was not. No. Bit of retconning, I think, going on, though. In fact, all retconning is a con, isn't it? That's why it's got con in there. Yeah, like comic cons. They're not called cons for nothing. Yeah. Because there's no comics, though. Well, there's a couple of comics. Number two, Spider-Man and Murray J. Oh, you know, something did happen. We're going on a comic con. Yeah. I went to it. I got to sit in kit. That was the highlight of my day. <laughs> it was probably the highlight of... Oh, yeah, I, I wandered around a bit. Colin Baker was there. Did you, did you speak I, to him? I, you know. And, uh, Jerry Bullock was there, Boba Fett. Right. And Kenny Baker was there, R2-D2. Kenny Baker's everywhere there. And Femi Taylor, who played the dancer in Return of the Jedi, who I swear doesn't look more than 30 now. So right. I don't see how she could have been in Return of the Jedi. But no, no, I didn't really feel like paying £25 for a scribbled autograph. Yeah, fair enough. There has to be somebody really special for me to pay for their autograph. He was charging £25. Yeah. I think he was charging a tenner if you'd brought something for him to sign. Right. And then it was 15 or 20 or 25 depending on what you wanted. Fair enough. But no... Depending on what you wanted, what? The, the, the less... Yeah, the, the bigger the, the thing. The less undecipherable the signature, the signature yeah. to be. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was I enjoyed walking around, but I'm not really that interested in paying for an actor's signature. It's just not my bag, is it? No. I'm not interested in them. I like the character that they played. Although I can now say I've now been in the same room as a Doctor Who. Fair enough. That's pretty much... Anyway, should we get back to Bobby's email? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spider-Man and Murray Jane, in keeping with the 1970s, Peter Parker and Murray Jane Watson did not start officially dating until Amazing Spider-Man 149, the end of the original Clone Saga. Len Wein and Ross Andrew took over with Amazing Spider-Man 151 when Peter takes MJ to a party at J. Jonah Jameson's penthouse. Jonah and Flash Thompson argue over Guy Lombardo records, a blackout happened caused by the supervillain The Shocker, and Peter vanishes, web-swinging off Jonah's balcony. In the next two issues, MJ is furious with Peter for leaving without saying anything to her to take photographs of the blackout. Given the Murray Jane knew Peter's secret all along retcon from the late 1980s, you have to wonder what MJ really thought. If Peter had told her, I have to go take photos of the blackout, MJ would know he'd only be telling her part of the truth, that he would be Spider-Man when taking said photos. Number three, post-apocalyptic 70s comics. Kill Raven was Marvel's take on Hero Wonder's post-apocalyptic landscape with War of the World's Martian tripods mixed in. Do you know, that sounds actually really, really good. Doesn't it? Yeah. I, could, I, I may have to dig out some Kill Raven comics. Amazing Adventures issue 38 by Bill Mantlo and Keith Giffen had Kill Raven enter the Dream Dome. It entered a giant <laughs> stone tattoo one walks out. <laughs> It included a giant stone temple shaped like sports announcer Howard Cussell's head and President Gerald Ford dressed up like Captain America. From Wikipedia, in 1975, Marvel UK's Planet of the Apes comics reprinted Kill Raven as Ape Slayer with alterations to substitute the Martians for apes and placed the strip in the Planet of the Apes universe. I was aware of that because I used to read Planet of the Apes. Anyway, keep up the good work, Bobby Coakley. You're very welcome. 
Bobby. We'll try. I mean, you know, I can't make any promises. We might just have mediocre one. <laughs> if we aim for mediocrity yeah. and then fall short, that's probably keeping up our level of good work. Mm-hmm. That's my thinking, anyway. David Samora emailed in saying, Hush Kids Comics. Does that mean he wants us to shut up? I think so. Okay. Dear Michael and Andy, I pretty much agree with the sentiment expressed in the show. As a magical mystery tour led by Jim Lee through the Batverse, Hush is a fine comic. The mystery angle doesn't really work, but then again, when has there ever been a superhero comic series centred around a mystery that had a good payoff? Yeah, Globe's other Batman. Long Halloween? Yeah. It was a decent payoff, wasn't it? If memory serves. I've only ever read that once. You've read that more than me, haven't you? Yeah. And that's decent payoff, though, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, there are hints there that tell you who the bad guy is. That actually work. Yeah, unlike as opposed to Hush's, Hush, yeah. Hush's hints. Clues. Hush's hints. Hush's clues. Hush's, Hush's, we're making this up as we go along. Hush's clues towards who doesn't turn out to be the main bad guy. Yeah, alright. I think Hush is a good villain, continues Davis, because he is Batman's evil opposite. He's pretty much the wrath from the Batman special covered in Hey Kids Comics episode 2. I do like that he did that. Yeah. I wouldn't have remembered that, would you? Yeah, because yeah, Batman was the second one we ever did. And is that the issue that I picked for that one? Yeah. Alright, I'm fair enough. Enemy on the other side. Player on the other side. Player on the My all time favourite Batman story. But with a personal connection to Bruce and a more fleshed out backstory. His hatred for his parents for a nice contrast with Bruce's placement of his own on a pedestal. And the fact that Mrs. Elliot told Tommy that he should be more like Bruce all throughout his childhood provides a good reason, at least to me, why he would resent Bruce. Most of Tommy's history was provided by the Paul Dini pen sequel Heart of Hush. If you haven't checked that out, I recommend doing so. It's a good read. I kind of think that if you're relying on the sequel written by a different writer... You've not done a good job. You've not done a good enough job with your own story. Yeah. I mean, Heart of Hush may be very good, because it's Paul Dini. Mm. Paul Dini's never really let us down, has he? No. He's just done a new graphic novel with Zatanna in it. He has. And Black Canary. Black Canary, Mm. Oh, and since Hey Kids Comics is coming to an end as a regular show, uh, well, we didn't actually, you know, still up in the air. That's up to you now. It's your decision. The, the, The show ending is now entirely up to you. That's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. How about a listener poll? Favourite impression, Doctor Doom. (laughs) Fair enough. Favourite Michael Project, Final Crisis. Favourite Spotlight series, Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker, or a few I have in mind. It could either be a set of characters agreed on beforehand, or just about anything the listeners could come up with. Just something to consider. Long live Hey Kids Comics. Well, thank you. We we appreciate it. That's a listener poll. Of our best bits. <laughs> How long do you think that episode would be? Oh, I don't know. The shortest <laughs> one we've done. We could probably do it in the what we did this week part of the show. <laughs> yeah. This is a list of poll of our best bits. Are we going to jump the shot near the end and just have a, a, a flashback episode? Yeah. A compilation a episode. A compilation episode that I actually can't be bothered doing, so I've just randomly picked bits from episode. <laughs> Davis also has a PS. Whatever happens in Superman's cape stays in Superman's cape. Gives new meaning to tugging on Superman's cape. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> That's a little, little bit rude. David Gutierrez emailed in. Andrew and Michael, I have been remiss in writing to you, so here goes. 70s shows, wonderful coverage of The Punisher's first appearance, Swamp Thing and the horror stuff, and anything else I haven't mentioned. I'm going to miss regularly hearing Michael. That's a huge change for me, given my automatic dislike of teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Get off my lawn! 
As for Hush, I tried to read along with you on this review and just couldn't get through it. I want to like. In fact, I believe I used to, but something's just not firing for me. I hope maybe your next review might shed some light on what it is that's missing. Best, David. Thank you very much, David, for emailing it. Next, Professor Allen emailed in again. Chums! Hello, Professor Allen. In episode 25, you lamented, well, Andy lamented, the fact that DC has made Batman their lead character and that they have shuffled Superman back to the second spot. Yes, there was a lawsuit going on which may have affected DC's priorities for a few years, but the business professor in me wants to lay the blame for Batman's ascendancy, if blame is what you want to assign, at the feet not of DC, but of DC's readership. A look at the comic book sales for April 2014 reveals that Batman dominates the sales charts. Here is some info according to Diamond Sales as reported on the Comicron.com website. Among the first wave of new 52 books, Batman, third best-selling book of the month, Detective Comics, 21st, and Batman and 38th, each outsold Action, coming in at 51st, and Superman at 54th. The top ten sellers for the month also included each of the four issues of Batman Eternal, and another Bat-related book, Harley Quinn issue 5, was the 15th best-selling book of the month. The best-selling book with Superman in the title was Batman Superman, 20th best-selling. Don't blame DC for publishing all these Batman books. Blame their readers for wanting them. Um, oh, I do frequently. Yeah, well, doesn't that tie in to what we talked about when we did Death of the Family, in a, a tangential way? That we rail against crossovers, and I right. frequently don't support them, despite the fact that you constantly try to make me. There's, there's more comics to collect. But it's a habit. It's, it's win-win, as far as you're concerned. Yeah. But as we pointed out in that show, issues that had Death of the Family slapped on the cover sold better. Yeah. So the bottom line is, the companies are only responding to what we are buying. If you're buying all the Batman books at the expense of anything else, they're going to publish more Batman books. Yeah. And the same, if you buy all the crossovers... It's, they're going to publish more crossovers. Kelly Sue DeConnick did a panel this week. Right. Where she basically said at Marvel, it isn't obligatory to take part in a crossover. Okay. You can actually opt out if you think that taking part in this crossover would screw over your story. And Axel Alonso won't force the issue. Yeah. But what she said, and Peter David said this before, is like it or not, being part of a crossover bumps the sales of your book. Yeah. And if you're on a mid-level title... Bumping the sales on that book could give you six more months worth of books. Yeah. So you're actually quite stupid to not take part in that crossover. And until it changes that we buy everything that is part of a crossover, then they'll keep doing it. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I don't think I did blame DC for publishing so many Batman books. I, I do blame us. I've said that in a show before. We're ultimately responsible for what sells. I blame them hipsters, you. Do you? I've, yep, because it's the same for Deadpool over at yeah, Marvel. Yeah, at Marvel, yeah. Lol, so random. And is it the same for Wolverine, or was it the same for Wolverine for a short time? Put it's, Wolverine in a book and sales increase? And well, yeah, but it's... it's if, if my problem is with hipsters, then the example is very definitely Deadpool. Right. See, there's not a lot you can do about that. I mean, I'm not buying a single DC book in September. Yeah. Because it's the... Is it, what's it called? Future's End crossover. It's Multiverse, you're not out that month. Oh yeah, I'm buying new Multiverse. Oh, okay. That's the only thing I'm buying as long in as September. I'm not conned out of that. And there's a part of me that wanted to write to Dan DiDio to thank him for saving me money that month. <laughs> I mean, some of it... the first time he's done it since the new 52 Yeah, started. some of it's give another boot that I was going to drop a reprieve. Yeah. Because I was like, well, I'm not buying anything else this month, I'll give it another issue. Yeah. But I'm not buying a single thing, and there is a small part of me 
And I don't want DC to fail. Irrespective of what I think of a lot of what the new 52 is doing, I don't want any company, comic company to fail. Yeah. But there is a part of me, that a very small part, that would like that month to just flop. Because... So they'd stop doing gimmick months. Be brutally honest. Who can afford all of that? It's not just that Future's End's a weekly series, which is what? $4 a month? Is that a $4 book or a $3 book? Probably 3 So either way, $3, $3.69, $12 a month. Yeah. Plus instantly. 52. Plus September, where you've got 52 $3 and $4 books. Well, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot, though, because... It, it, as has been with every other gimmick month so every, every September since the launch of the New 52 there'll just be an omnibus there's been an issue 1 omnibus mm-hmm. an issue 0 omnibus and a villains cover omnibus, the, the villains omnibus and all of them were the September gimmicks so this future end so does that mean as well that for that month you're not getting an issue of Batman yeah you're not getting an issue of John Romita and um nope Jeff Johns is Superman. Nope. So for a month, you're skipping. Yeah, and for so, that month, it'll be cheaper to not buy anything and wait for that omnibus Well, that's the thing as well, is that not... I will go that month and go, do you know, I didn't really miss any of them DC books I didn't buy. Yeah. And stop buying the very few DC books that I'm currently still buying anyway. Yeah. Which is Batman, Justice League, a couple of books for you. Mm. And I'm giving the... Jeff John's Superman title ago, aren't I? Yeah. But it, it, surely it would be very easy for me to skip September completely, which I've done, and then get to October solicitations and go, really not missing it? Mm. Isn't that a danger for them? But it's three months in advance, so you won't know that you wouldn't have missed it. Yeah, from, this, from From then, you haven't missed out on that month. Well, yet. with the cancellation of All Star West, and what am I buying? Superman and Batman. Well, you get Justice League as well. Yeah, I read Justice League. I went out for, for that for seven months. You can't put that on me anymore. Why? Because I wasn't reading it for seven months. Yeah, only why Forever Evil was happening. Yeah. Um, Which you were waiting to read the whole you thing. You read Harley Quinn. Yes, I do. I'm still on the fence for that. Batman's yours for the sake of this argument <laughs> yeah it's not in my boxes though is it none of them are you no, said that no. they were mine yeah if you go though I'm keeping Batman <laughs> I'll buy the trades good idea so yeah no I don't think we did blame DC for publishing what sells yeah we blame us for buying lots of big crossovers yeah because I don't think they're necessary Apart from a sales bottom line, so maybe they are necessary to keep the rest of the books afloat. I don't know. DC have announced now that digital sales and comic book sales are all just going to be one. Yeah. So that may boost the sales on some titles, but I don't know. I don't know that there's an easy way around it. So thank you very much, everyone who emailed in. I was going to say bye then. Mm. <laughs> we'll play a promo and be back with Hulk Grey by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com
Grey is the third and so far final story in the Colours trilogy that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale did for Marvel. Spider-Man Blue and Daredevil Yellow were the previous two and were both highly acclaimed, not only for the dancing around the raindrops approach to telling stories in and around the early Marvel Comics originals, but for their focus and appearance. Sale's magnificent and earthy art was incredibly appropriate for these early days stories and suited the characters of Spider-Man and Daredevil perfectly, evoking the era both were created in, the early to mid-1960s, while still being essentially timeless. Both were also love stories to the central protagonist's lost love, Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man's case, and Karen Page for Daredevil. It's no surprise, therefore, that Hulk Grey doesn't attempt to reinvent the wheel in this regard, once again being a love story, once again focusing on a long-time love interest that was, at least at the time of this publication, dead, and once again taking place in the early days of the character. In Hulk Grey's particular case, though, this is taken to the extreme, with this story taking place, according to Loeb, in the first 24 hours of the creature's existence. What Hulk Grey also differs from the other tales is in the approach taken by the creators. Whilst Jeff Loeb was a fan of the original comics, calling the Hulk a wonderfully tragic character, Tim Sale had no emotional connection to the creature, having never read the original stories as a kid. Sale's response to the Hulk has always been to his physical appearance, the immensity of his power and his sheer physicality. To work his way into the character, Sale based his Hulk not only on the work of Jack Kirby, which makes sense as he was the originator of the Hulk's look, but also Jim Steranko and his hugely influential cover to Incredible Hulk Annual No. 1. Rather more off the beaten track, sailors also looked to Marie Severin's work on Not Brand Ech, where she parodied the Hulk in a strip called The Incredible Bulk. Now, whilst no one can argue with Kirby's original depiction of the character or Steranko's seminal cover, both of those were different yet the same. Kirby depicted him as a Frankenstein-esque monster, while Sterenko went more for a lean, muscular bodybuilder, but both were acceptable versions of the same guy. Severin's bulk was for a humour mag. It was a send-up. Her Hulk was overweight and lumbering in a comical way. He looked more like Larry from L.A. Law than Lou Ferrigno. As before, Hulk Grey was a six-issue series, and mine is the hardcover collected edition from 2004. The cover of the hardcover follows the sale template for the series. The Hulk in grayscale and the Dirigeur purple pants lumbers at the reader like an out-of-control four-year-old who's just been shown the biscuit tin. The eyes have an emerald hue, which is a nice touch, whilst the lettering of the title and creators all follow the same colour scheme of green, purple and grey. The design of the cover is nicer than the actual art, which is neither scurry nor attractive. It's no Jim Steranko, that's for sure, but Sale is going more for the misunderstood monster vibe, and in that regard this cover captures the tone of the series quite well. Rather oddly, the cover to the hardcover is a cropped version of the cover to issue one. Seen in full, the figure work is more easily appreciated, and the Hulk's massive form can be seen to full effect, making the artwork look more refined. The Hulk still looks like he's struggling to stand on his own and is quite top-heavy, but it looks a lot better in full than on the hardcover. Which do you prefer? After, uh, I'm not bothered. I, I just like the cover. You can unfold the dusk jacket yeah. and see it in full if you want to. But it's alright. It's, it's, I think that's Sale's best depiction of the Hulk in this entire series. Yeah. Yes, I'm not a big fan of his Hulk. I really liked it. 
Did you? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, we've got something to talk about then. That seems fair enough. A is for Apple, is the title of chapter one. And the entire series is, as you have probably guessed, written by Jeff Loeb, with art by Tim Sale. On the anniversary of his wedding, Dr. Robert Bruce Banner visits psychiatrist Leonard Sampson to talk about how it all began. Feeling that any discussion of his father is being played out, Banner turns his attentions to where his life got flipped, turned upside down. The desert. And the gamma bomb testing site were, in saving the life of moron teenager Rick Jones, Banner was caught in the heart of a gamma bomb explosion, and his body chemistry forever altered, causing him to physically metamorphose at night. The military searched for Banner, as did his love Betty Ross, but Banner, now transformed into a seven-foot-tall rampaging monster with a greyish tinge to the skin and proportions greatly like a man but hugely enlarged, had his first encounter with the US military. As General Thunderbolt Ross made his first date with destiny in setting out to seek the Hulk, the creature himself seeks out Betty, his and Banner's only real connection. And all the synopsis is quite short, yeah. as you may have guessed. Uh, Sale has a signature way of laying out both of the previous series, a large splash to open the story and grab the attention of the reader, followed by an even more impressive double-page spread to really reel the audience in. If it ain't broke, Sale doesn't attempt to fix it, following the template to a T in this series, with every single issue opening in the same way. Art-wise, there's little to fault other than the actual appearance of the Hulk, which we'll get to as we go along. The opening begins in stark monochrome, signifying the flashback nature of the story. Unlike Blue and Yellow, which used a letter to a dead girlfriend as the narrative device, Loeb here uses Banner's visits to psychiatrist Leonard Sampson to establish the modern-day setting of the story. There are flashes of colour in this otherwise stark black-and-white opening, and this will be repeated at the close of the series in issue 6. The colour is used well. Bruce's eyes are green, as is his hand in one panel. It's an interesting technique used by Spielberg in Schindler's List and other films such as A Matter of Life and Death and Pleasantville. I like that he's... The pictures that he uses for General Ross and Rick Jones and Betty I like that the watercolour watercolour thing that Jim Lee did in Hush yeah whereas the rest of it's just solid yeah yeah. I, I quite like that because it makes them really stand out and makes them look different to the other artwork they do look like 8x10 glosses mm. it's quite impressive it's a really neat trick Loeb is also back on far surer footing than in Hush from a few weeks ago Freed from the constraints of writing to his artist's attention-challenged whims, he can concentrate on what he's good at, character. Whilst the tell-me-about-your-father approach is hackneyed, Loeb's use of Banner's word association with the pictures he's provided by Samson have a provocative double meaning. For General Ross, he says hate, before clarifying that he believes Ross hates him, not the other way around. For Rick, blame, before again claiming Rick blames himself for the accident that spawned the Hulk. For Betty, he studiously avoids answering. He just says, where did you get this? Yeah. Which I thought was, psychologically, lobes on, on the top of his game hmm. in this one. Because the Hulk and Banner are a very psychologically rich character to analyse. Or I yeah. think they are. Like Batman and his rogues gallery. I think so, anyway. I, I like the, the splash page. Yes. Yeah. of how gross it is. What, the, the splash page of Banner being caught in the gamma bomb explosion. Of him just literally burning. 
Yeah, I mean, it does look like his rib cage has come out of his body, though, doesn't it? Yeah. When he really, his shirt is We can ripped. see all of his skills. Yeah, it's very, it is a very impressive piece of work, the, the gamma bomb explosion page. As with the Wizard of Oz, the larger-than-life aspects of the story become colour with this splash page. Yeah. So, Bruce, caught in the explosion, Sale has made no real effort to ape what Kirby did there. Hmm. Which is something of a blessing, to be honest. He's using Kirby's designs, but essentially making them own. But yeah, it is. Um, you turn from black and white to colour with and the it, big explosion. With the big explosion and Banner just being a, a green skeleton for all intents and purposes. And it is like when the when Dorothy enters Oz, yeah, and it stops being sepia and becomes colour. And you're like, wow, in 1939, this must have been <laughs> really quite impressive. General Thunderbolt Ross is always yelling as he makes his first appearance in the strip, which was a nice touch. Played far more angrily than J. Jonah Jameson, his spiritual brother. Ross was always in danger of being a caricature at might-makes-right, almost laughable parody of a man. Over the years, though, Ross has been developed and deepened considerably, making these early scenes a study in a man's love and desire to protect his daughter rather than him being a clichéd relic of the Cold War. I kind of like it when characters are very stereotypical like that, though. What, when they start off as stereotypical? Maybe even when they stay, though. Some characters, I don't think, need that character development as long as it's a good stereotype. It kind of runs a little bit old over a series that's now been running for 40 years. But in a series, when it was released, though, I just quite like it. The gruff military general. Yeah. Because, Decker by any other because every character in this is essentially just a stereotype. Yeah, I think he fleshes Betty out quite well. Yeah. But again, this goes back to what we talked about when we did Yellow and Blue. This is Bruce's memories and even of the events. Well, yeah, yeah, Samson nearly points that out. So any discrepancies in continuity, and we are bringing back continuity and nitpicks for this. Can just be blamed. Can just be blamed on Bruce's faulty memory. Yeah. You put six people in a room and show them an event, they will have six different interpretations of that event, depending what they themselves bring to it. Yeah. It's the whole point of Roshiman. So, yeah, so any real continuity glitches, you can just say, Bruce's memories falter. Mm. Which is fair enough. Did you notice, middle panel of this page, there's Igor. Igor is the guy who causes the gamma bomb to go off. Bruce asks him to stop the countdown right. while he goes out to prevent Rick Jones. Right. And there's, there's Igor, the Cold War spy. It's the only nod he gets in this series, isn't it? Yeah. All of the Cold War stuff is shown from this series completely. After a a General Ross-Betty confrontation, Rick has taken Dr. Banner to a doctor after being caught in the explosion. I have to confess I really do like the scene where Banner essentially tears a strip off Rick. Hmm. I always thought Banner accepted what happened to him rather easily, given that it was all Rick's fault. Yeah. Wasn't it? Hmm. What was Rick even doing there? It was a bet. Oh, yeah. There's no ambiguity to the Hulk's origins. Without Rick being a selfish, inconsiderate ass, Banner doesn't become the Hulk. Yeah. Again, this is something I like seeing being explored. And I always thought in the, the old Hulk comics, Banner was a little bit too tolerant of what Rick had done. Yeah. Because let's be honest, of all the, the superheroes, and you can argue that the Hulk is a superhero if you want to. But of all of them, being the Hulk has ruined Banner's life. 
Yeah. It's not like the Flash thing where he enjoys it. Or even Spider-Man. Spider-Man's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, but when he puts the mask on and goes swinging through the city, mm. he's happy for five minutes. Yeah. The Hulk ruined Bruce's life. And he can't turn the Hulk off. And he can't turn the Hulk off. Yeah. He has no control of it. And Has no one thought to put Rick Jones on a shuttle and launch him into space yet? Because <laughs> it was all his he fault. He turns Bruce into the Hulk and he, he, he goes and makes Captain America turn him into his partner. Yeah, he made Captain America do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He did, yeah. He shut up, said, make me your partner with that self-entitlement that he And then he stops wanting to be his partner. Just as suddenly, (laughs) when the storyline's over. Uh, The first Hulk out in the strip happens here. The eyes triggering the transformation is, of course, a visual nod to the Bill Bixby-Luferino TV series. And the Hulk out is, as ever, a joy to see. I never get bored of Hulk outs. Mm. It's been my big disappointment with Mark Wade's run. He hasn't really done much in the way of Hulk out. Yeah. That's the best thing about it. Dip, dip, dip. Absolutely brilliant. I like how the Hulk is all in water colours, whereas everyone else is solid colour. Yeah, he does. I'm I'm so lukewarm and torn on his depiction of the Hulk. I don't like it. Yeah. But I don't not like it. It's, It's very weird. He doesn't... He seems very Neanderthal. Which I know is how he was portrayed in the early issues. Hmm. But this, he, he seems a bit more lumbering, a bit... I, I like it. Do you? Yeah. All right. With him being, like, too top-heavy and all over the place. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, like, he, he can't coordinate his limbs. Yeah, it's also reflecting his personality as well. Hmm, that's true. All right, fair enough. Uh, Banner's dialogue to Samson, which is carried all the way through the series is a lobe staple that here makes total sense rather than an internal dialogue Banner is actually addressing someone making it make perfect sense that he would give voice to his inner thoughts and feelings one of the elements of Banner many writers have struggled with is why he was building weapons in the first place it's simply one of the more dated aspects of the strip 60s beginning but I've got to be honest I never had a problem with it I Banner's got to do something. Weapons get built. Yeah. It may as same well... With, same with Tony Stark. It's the same with Tony Stark, isn't it? You know, they may as well be... May as well be them as anybody else. Yeah. In the Marvel Universe. I mean, Stan Lee obviously felt the creation of the Hulk was Banner's penance for the creation of the Gamma Bomb. But the initial stories, there was never any inkling Banner felt he was wrong in mm. following that career path. Later versions of the story in acquiescing to more modern sensibilities have never been able to adequately explain this dichotomy in Banner's personality. Yeah. Why would he do this now if he's this peacenik? But we never we never got from the original stories that he was embarrassed by his his career path. Tony Stark is haven't they kind of made it so he's now he doesn't get involved in any of that anymore. Well, there was same anyway, that's his his character development when his weapons got used against him. I see I'm, I don't know what I think about that. Yeah. I don't I don't see any problem with with Stark being in the weapons manufacturing business. I can understand why Bruce Wayne wouldn't be. Yeah. Because it doesn't necessarily make any difference to what Bruce Wayne makes his money doing. No, I I, I kinda like it with Tony Stark because of him creating weaponry he It's felt, a character path. Yeah, he it. felt that power through his weapons, but when they were used against him it stripped him of that power he thought he had. Right. Yeah, see, d- d- Luke doesn't dwell on this. Yeah. To be fair, so maybe we shouldn't either. The two-page spread of the Hulk standing immobile as a military police jeep crashes into him. 
spilling its occupants all over the floor is both excellent and highly comical. The MP that was driving has definitely got a broken nose. Yeah. His face just smashed into that windscreen. It's pretty flat now. Yes. I mean, I presume that, you know, plastic surgery fixed it. (laughs) A fake nose Mm. from the Jackson (laughs) catalogue. I also presume, and this is just presumption on my part, that the MP that the Hulk casually just throws through the air found his way into a nice welcoming lake (laughs) that was just out of view. Yeah, the one where he fights Tony later. Yeah, yeah, so there is one around here then. Yeah. Yeah, alright, that seems fair enough. Uh, It was an entertaining, if very slight first chapter, Sales Earth is nice even if his Hulk is a little more lumbering lunkhead than muscle-bound anti-hero, and Loeb's story is once again more concerned with emotions rather than building a mystery. It doesn't as yet have the heart of yellow or blue. That may be due to the Hulk story not really lending itself to a more sympathetic portrayal like those issues did. But it was alright, wasn't it? Mm. It was a, a refreshing change after Hush. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot more than I did the previous thing. The return of continuity and nitpicks. (laughs) It's back. Uh, The first point that I've noted is incredibly nitpicky, but that's surely the whole point of this section. When it's called continuity and nitpicks. So don't email in and complain (laughs) that we're being nitpicky in the section of the show that's called continuity and nitpicks. The Hulk was indeed grey-skinned in his first appearance, and he only became green-skinned in issue two and going forward. However, only readers who read the first print, first appearance of the character, would have even been aware of this. Subsequent reprints had the Hulk be his regular green-skinned self. It was only when Bill Mantlo and Peter David brought attention to this many years later that the Grey Hulk was even acknowledged as being anything other than a printing error. It's like taking Amazing Fantasy issue 15, where Spider-Man has a blue spider on his back rather than a red one, and making an entire storyline out of it. There are other colouring errors in that first issue. Bruce Banner is blonde on the cover of Hulk issue 1. No one's ever felt the need to explain that away as a disorder or write a comic story called Banner Blonde. (laughs) And the Hulk is coloured with standard Caucasian skin colour in one panel of the issue. And no one's ever done Hulk Caucasian (laughs) as far as I'm aware. However, the Grey Hulk is now an accepted part of Hulk lore. But there was a time it was never mentioned or acknowledged. However... The title of this book doesn't necessarily refer to the Hulk's skin colour, any more than blue and yellow refer to those characters' respective costumes. What did you think the title of this one referred to? Uh, his his colour? No, see, thematically, I got that this grey is representing the area that the Hulk occupies in General Ross's life. I've got a couple of notes later on about this, and we'll get into it in further detail, but General Ross is a very black-and-white guy. Right. There is order and there is chaos. Yeah. He's, he's what's his name? That Steve Ditko character, isn't he? And the Hulk represents that grey area that Ross can't deal with. Right. Because he's not evil, but he's a monster. Yeah. So you can't contain him. He doesn't fit General Ross's idea of what the world should be, because he's just this loose cannon. And right. the grey, to me, represented what he represents to General Ross. It's a bit poetic, yeah. I just got <laughs> Spider-Man's costume's blue-ish. Yeah, and he Dirty was down. Man's costume was yellow-ish. The Hulk's grey. 
Excellent, good. <laughs> so thematically, you just work on a surface level. <laughs> Officer, explains. I'm a not great in many college things. anymore. No, I don't you, have to you don't have to think. Push <laughs> yeah. is the perfect comic when I'm not in college. Excellent. If we covered it now, yeah. we may have had a completely different reaction to it. Yep. All right, fair enough. Another large continuity nitpick is that in these early stories, the Hulk was rather more verbose than he is in this series. Whilst not giving after-dinner speeches, he could at least string a sentence together in a vaguely articulate manner. The first issue is largely told around Incredible Hulk issue 1, which was cover dated May 1962. If there's a complaint about this first issue, it's that Loeb makes no effort to introduce us to the characters like he did in Yellow or Blue, and as such, any new reader is potentially lost, especially as he skirts around the origin. Rick being here is incidental rather than the inciting incident of the original story, and there is no context given as to what he was doing there or why Banner saved him. The origin itself plays out exactly as it did in Hulk issue 1, but we see scenes we didn't see before, such as Ross's reaction. Rick taking Banner to a conveniently nearby located doctor is just as fortuitous as in the original, but Banner's reaction is more human here than in Hulk issue 1. As in that version, the transformation is at night rather than being caused whenever Dr. Banner grows angry or outraged. And in this version, Rick names him the Hulk rather than the military police. Speaking of, the MP's confrontation is a lot longer here, with Loeb and Sale expanding it for visual splendour, although said confrontation is played more for laughs in this version than in the original, where the Hulk deliberately smashes the MP's jeep, although he doesn't hurl them around and potentially hurt them in Hulk issue 1. The main nitpick is the ending. In Hulk number one, Rick never leaves the Hulk's side, and after the debacle with the MPs, the Hulk takes Rick to his barracks, whereas here, the Hulk ditches Rick straight away and heads over to Betty's barrack. The Cold War paranoia subplot of the original, as was done in Yellow, is completely ignored, making it quite hard to reconcile this version with the original. To be honest, I think Loeb and Sale missed a beat here. It's not in-depth enough to constitute a new, definitive origin of the Hulk, and it's too slight to supplant the original. Important information is glossed over or ignored, and because of this, it doesn't really work as a Hulk origin tale in the way that Yellow did for Daredevil. What did you think? Um, I didn't think it was the strongest of their entries, but it, it, it works well as its own story, really. Right. As long as you have... As long as you've got the contextual knowledge of what actually happened. At least you've got the the vaguest knowledge of who the characters are. Yeah, whereas in Spider-Man and Daredevil, he actually covered all that, didn't he? Yeah. And he introduced everything properly. Grey issue 2, B is for boy, has another cover shot of the Hulk being mostly off-page, screaming in frustration, his muscles, what we can see of them, rippling. For some reason, Sale draws the interior of the Hulk's mouth to be completely white, like it's a portal to the negative zone. And his teeth are awful. Get you to a dental hygienist. I, I really don't think much of that one. Uh, no. The muscular aperture of the Hulk is alright, what you can see of it. But if she's not the power cosmic out yeah, of his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> shooting the power cosmic out of his mouth is exactly right. Yeah, it is like in Marvel Zombies, isn't it? Yeah. It's exactly like that. That's yeah, why his teeth are so bad after biting Silver Surfer's head off. <laughs> oh, don't give Jeff Loeb ideas. <laughs> As the Hulk stands outside Betty's home, she pummels him, demanding to know where Bruce is. Betty passes out when the Hulk reveals he hates Banner as General Ross arrives threatening to open fire with his platoon of men. The Hulk smashes a foot into the ground, disrupting the men's footing and leaps away. 
Ross vows to hound the creature to the ends of the earth. Early the next morning, Rick follows the trail of destruction to locate Dr. Banner, and Bruce, horrified at what he has done, takes Rick to an underground bunker where nuclear waste is disposed of. This vast bunker has a large screw-type door, and Rick locks Bruce in for the night. The Hulk emerges and, displeased, pounds hard on the door that Rick knows can surely not last much longer. An incredibly good cliffhanger ending that will have no payoff! Yeah. I love the the splash page, the Hulk peeking through the spy hole. Yeah. <laughs> that was quite comical. And funny. I laughed quite a lot, because comical means funny, doesn't it? it don't really need to explain that, do I? Surely not. The entire point of the scene is questioning why Betty would even open the door after being expressly forbidden by her father. Personally, I think you've got your answer right there. I don't know how old Betty is supposed to be here, but she is presumably a few years younger than Bruce. I do, however, question the logic of her smacking her fists into a large monster that just appears at her doorway and apparently knows who she is. Uh, That didn't seem terribly logical to me. Ah, big monster in my door, I will punch you! (laughs) Not not, not even the Hulk strong enough to go against a woman, though. (laughs) Especially when she just faints and he catches her. Small details have been updated in addition to eliminating the commie subplot of Incredible Hulk 1. Understandable now that this tale would have been taking place in about 1990. The MPs also use laser-sighted weaponry, which I don't think was available in 1962. Yeah... There is that. Yeah, I mean, it was used in the Terminator in the early 80s. Maybe the prototypes. Very possible. But like I said, if this came out in 2003, at the time that he was writing this, which, God, Jesus, ten years ago now. Yeah. This came out over ten years ago. So that means he will have been setting the story in the early 1990s. So it's, he, all he's done is uh, update the technology, hasn't he? Wait, so these flashback bits are in the 90s? Yeah, the way Marvel's sliding timeline works... I, I don't get that. Why though. not? Because it can't take place in 1962. But it's timeless as the three of them are. They are very definitely set that, well, that's, in that That's the beauty of them, isn't it? But, they are very definitely 60s, but at the same time they work divorced from that decade. But this is very definitely the 60s, though. It, uh, why'd you say that? See, I didn't get a time frame Don't, from this. But it can't be because Tony Stark's Iron Man, which means it has to be after Vietnam. See, but that doesn't work anymore, that, that Tony... It, hasn't Tony's origin now been updated to a different war, like in the film? Yeah, but... No, I, I see all three of these as taking place in 60s, 70s. Well, they exist in that ambiguous no, they time don't. period. Uh, they can't exist in the 60s, they didn't have loads of sight. Ross weapon. asks, what's his face, does he want a soda pop? That single <laughs> phrase the ages this more than He's anything old fashioned, else. Dude. That's what he refers to it as. Yeah, but Rick looks like he was from the fifties and the sixties. Well, that's that's what I'm talking on the sliding Marvel timescale. This will have taken place. I don't think this. If is you think of it this way, right? Right. If this was now, the Leonard Sampson stuff is happening right now. Yeah. This story is now taking place in the early two thousands. That's really just... Then that makes mind, it even it? worse. <laughs> no, that's the way Marvel's sliding timeline works. Uh, it works. The Fantastic Four, as of now, 2014... Right. ...took the spaceship jaunt... Right. ...in the early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. But that works, if that's what the story is. But when the story is very definitely written to be, and drawn to be, <laughs> like the time period where they first came out... I it see, doesn't work. I didn't... 
I didn't get that in this one as much as I did in the Spider-Man. I one. got this more so. Really? Yeah. Right. Okay. Because the whole army-based Nevada testing site is a story that looks exactly like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's very definitely a thing that exists in that time period. Right. We still have them. Yeah. But yeah. That was the heyday. All right. Fair enough. But at least that does fit into it, the timelessness of these three stories. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. <laughs> we will agree to disagree. Nice to see... But as, as for the, the laser size, though... Go on. They're on an army base, who knows what they have? Yeah. There's a UFO underneath where they're stuck. Yeah, they're in Area 51. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's alien tech. What if the Hulk was the alien was from the Roswell? alien from Roswell. <laughs> yeah. That actually totally works. I, you know, fanfic, I always wanted to see that issue, episode, issue, an episode of the X-Files where Fox Mulder was trying to track down this big green creature that was seen <laughs> all across America. I would have loved that episode of X-Files. <laughs> a crossover with Marvel. A crossover with the Incredible Hulk TV show. And he meets up with Jack McGee and they compare notes. <laughs> that would have been brilliant. Anyway, but that, that's a digression. Nice to see the Hulk's patented smash the floor with his foot to cause an earthquake routine. Mm. Which is always a crowd pleaser, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> if he spins around really, really fast, really... <laughs> Make a big hole. Will he be like the Tasmanian devil? <laughs> He's so top heavy in this, he might as well. Yes, he is. He is rather top heavy in this one, isn't he? The scene where Betty passes out and Hulk takes her in his arms just as Thunderbolt Ross and the MPs arrive was nicely judged. Seeing his daughter threatened by the creature gives Ross a credible reason for wanting to hunt him down. As Bruce points out, though, Ross was willing to open fire on him with his daughter there. However, this exposes a slight flaw in the narrative. Bruce says Ross has heard reports that the Hulk is bulletproof, but that's supposition on his part. Ross received a call about a monster, yes, but the Hulk left all those men unconscious, so Banner doesn't know for a fact what Ross knows and doesn't know. Yeah. So General Ross may not know at this point that bullets just bounce off the Hulk's skin. So that throws it into a different light. It also questions Bruce's blind, not hatred, but distrust of General Ross. He's applying the idea here that Ross knew that bullets bounce off the Hulk, so he was deliberately putting Betty at risk there just to take the Hulk out. Yeah. But as far as the story is concerned, we don't know Ross knows that. Mm. We've not seen that he knows that yet. The people that that happened to on the previous couple of pages, are still unconscious. Yeah. I just thought that was an oddity. But again, it can be written away as Bruce's memory being faulty, or Bruce presuming Ross knows something that he doesn't. Yeah. That's just my thought on it. Or maybe Ross was just that angry and he, he was going to shoot him in a... Yeah, possibly, and he didn't care about better. Is that what yeah. you're saying? It fits, kind it of. Kind of. Until you get to the next page. <laughs> Uh, we also see that Ross, like the Sith, deals in absolutes. Ross's worldview is very black and white, and suddenly confronted, literally, with a living, breathing example of the existence of a grey area. He just doesn't know how to deal with it. That's mm. where I think the story's title comes from. As you say, it was very poetic, though. <laughs> and maybe I was reading too much into it. No, I don't think even Loeb saw that. Do you not? See, after, I, after I think Hush, that he did. After reading Hush, do you think Loeb can be subtle? Yes, yeah, I think he can. I just think he chooses not to be on a lot of occasions. 
I actually think on these three stories he sat down and gave them a lot of thought. So sometimes he wants to be Shakespeare, other times he wants to be Seth MacFarlane. Get wrong with that. Fair enough. In fact, Loeb's strengths are on display in the scene where Ross asks Betty to tell him why the Hulk came to her door. Yeah. Which is a good question. She's got no clue. Hmm. But there's an awful lot of backstory here as well on Betty's mum that's provided without it ever feeling forced or expository. Yeah. Expository. The, the fact that she was on antidepressants and that Ross has a very low opinion of her and so the implication he's raised his daughter. Mm. I thought that was real. Again, like you just said, I thought that was a subtle page yeah. for a writer best known for being bombastic. Good moment of black humour when Banner asks how Rick found him. And we just see a two-page spread of the destruction the Hulk has left in his wake. No bodies, though. Well, they make, a lot of vehicles. I like that because it makes a point later on in the story of saying the Hulk has never killed anybody. Yeah. Again, we'll get so to where, that. So where are all the soldiers then? Did they just run away? Yeah, they just run off. Uh, it's okay, so the pilot of that helicopter ran off with his broken legs. Yes, yes. Or he jumped free or whatever. See, I don't so mean... Do right, last week you overanalyzed the scene with Lex Luthor surviving the helicopter crash, right? That was two weeks ago. Okay, let's take that helicopter crash alone, okay? He, yeah, he's, he's going to be too injured to run away from the Hulk. The difference And if he jumps out, he's going to get cut up by the helicopter. Now, the guy in the, the truck, can you see how the truck folds over like that? Right. The difference is, you're seeing the, the aftermath Right. Of a Hulk rampage. It's not like we've seen the Hulk grab the tail <laughs> section of a helicopter and smash the cockpit into a building that the occupant of that helicopter then suddenly just gets out of going, oh, I, I appear to have a minor headache, like he's in an episode of the A-Team. You're seeing the, the end of a rampage. You're seeing a bunch of soldiers who maybe have landed the helicopter and then got out to attack the Hulk, and he's picked up the helicopter and switched it around. It does beg the question, though, if the wreck, the wrecks are that close to him, why did the military just stop? They would have continued to send forces out, especially if they were led by Ross. Yes, that is a very good point. It's also possible, playing devil's advocate, right. that because they're in the middle of the desert and miles away from anywhere, this is all that they had there, and they've not called in reinforcements but or such. there's yet. a military base... There is. <laughs> yeah, I'm spitting in the wind a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if Rick could find them, I'm sure the military could. That's true. That, that is a valid point. Yeah. Actually. All right, I'll give you that. And one. again, with the wreck being that close, how did the Hulk calm down so quickly? Well... Oh, smashing up these helicopters and trucks is so hard work, I'm just going to go to sleep. Uh, you don't know how long he's been there, because it says clearly says the next day. Yeah. The Hulk, at this point in his history, didn't change whenever he grew angry or outraged or whatever. Hmm. He changed at night. He was very much like a werewolf. Yeah, so this, this is morning. Yeah, so this is morning, and Hulk's gone, oh, er, morning, er, sleep, er, but and then Banners walk up. It's the same both times. I mean, not, not, they use both of those Hulk changes in this, though. Yeah. The first time it happens is because he's angry. The second time is because it's night. Yes. And then the time at the end is because he's angry again. Is that not, though, playing with the idea that is evolution of the Hulk. It stopped changing at night and became angry. But is Loeb, do you think, playing with the idea that both transformational possibilities were always there? Yeah, but 
it he changes because he's angry the first time he changes it. Yeah, in the doctor's surgery. Yeah. Yes, he does. And then he changes at night. I think that's just love tying it all together. I think that's love saying from the very beginning you would change when you got angry, but you also changed at night. The the thing is with that though is if we're going for it's morning when he wakes up now, mm-hmm. he just goes straight to the cave and then he turns into the Hulk again almost immediately. Yes. So is it the, the solar power that keeps him as Banner? Well, you've also got to assume maybe they're in the desert. Maybe it took them all day to get here. Not if it's close... Because they say it's the, the nuclear dumping base from the military base. So presumably it's near the base. Yeah. But maybe not that near because it's nuclear waste. There, yeah, there is that. And also take into consideration a ten minute journey across the desert in a military helicopter versus walking that same distance. Yeah. You could be looking at the better part of a day to walk it. Well, there would have been trucks if it's... But either way, yeah. you're still, you, it could still have taken the better part of a day to get here. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, I think we're analysing the timeline a little bit too much, although I do have a, a nitpick note about the timeline a little bit later on. It's pretty fur to say, I think, as Michael points out, they reached the nuclear waste dump. All my notes are pretty much going to be the same on the issues. These are very slight reads, aren't yeah. they? There's big panels and not a lot of dialogue, but Loeb does put a lot of psychology into this story, or I think that he does, and it's never really been more apparent that he does put a lot of thought into it than in the Colours trilogy. Mainly, I suspect, due to the fact that Banner is literally addressing a psychiatrist. Yeah. So that's probably helping him with his narrative. It's a good issue, but I suspect, as with a lot of the Loeb sale purrings, this would have been an infuriating read on a monthly basis. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Very, very irritating. Continuity and nitpicks! <laughs> uh, one of the little-known facts about Incredible Hulk issue 1 is that General Ross and the Hulk don't actually meet. Ross's all-consuming vendetta is a second-hand reaction to Betty being terrified by the Hulk. Whereas here... He actually sees it firsthand. Both motivations are the same, but by having Ross witness the Hulk with Betty, it fuels his hatred more and makes it more acceptable. Loeb has said that this story takes place in between Hulk issue 1 and Hulk issue 2, which really doesn't work. Better that he'd just have left it ambiguous, I think. The cave that Rick locks the Hulk in here is a nuclear waste bunker, which is a much better explanation than in Hulk issue 2, where it's just a random cave Rick and Bruce find, and then with that explanation, Bruce has managed to whip up a huge door that screws into place, entombing the Hulk. I don't know where he got all the equipment from, it's just all of a sudden it's the... It's also in the second issue that the confrontation with Ross at his home on the base takes place. It's still Ross and the Hulk's first face-to-face meeting. Loeb just moved it up in the timeline. Chapter 3, C is for Cry, as another cover of the Hulk punching something. It's off-page, so we don't get to see Rick Jones's head be squashed as if it's being caught under Kanye West's ego. What do you think of that? Um, it's, it's better. <laughs> it's not by much... Lobs covers lob. Sales covers for this really aren't particularly good, are they? Um, I think they capture more of the Hulk's personality than say. I think they capture his bestial nature more yeah, than his personality, yeah. but, but maybe it's one and the same. Seeing with Spider-Man Blues covers, we're focusing on the the women in his life. Yeah, this is on the Hulk. It's just purely focusing on the Hulk's rage. Yeah. All right, fair enough. 
Whilst the Hulk is busy bumming around and playing with rabbits, Rick is caught by the military, and General Ross demands to know the location of the Hulk. The Hulk finds Rick's jacket and heads towards the base where he breaks him out. Seeing Betty, though, causes Hulk to completely forget about Rick, and he grabs her and leaps away. However, unbeknownst to the Hulk, Tony Stark was at Rick's interrogation with a view to using Iron Man to bring the creature in. Uh, on page one, the Hulk's got a hold of a rabbit who really doesn't look like he wants to be the Hulk's friend. Yeah. And he's right not to be because Hulk accidentally kills it. Yeah. Which was a bit sad. It was a really sad moment. Wasn't it? Yeah. It, it was... That was probably more sad than the whole Hulk-Betty relationship thing. Yeah, especially when he pats him on the head and crushes it and kills it and it bleeds on him. And then he looks at it and, what, what's the blood? Why is friend wet? Yeah. And that's heartbreaking. <laughs> that was really sad. As well as being foreshadowing for later on. Which I thought was quite clever. When Betty bleeds. Yeah. And the Hulk panics because he thinks that Betty's dead. Mm. It's lovely. And it's really sad when he... Hulk. Hulk alone again. Oh! So he just decides to break a massive rock. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I've got a rock. Why would you know? The panel progression where the Hulk smashes the ledge he's sat upon. And then it crumbles underneath him. Because he's annoyed that he's killed the rabbit and he's lonely again is exceptionally comical. Largely because being in panels, it just looks like an old Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> looks like the floor disappears underneath him. And, like, he stood there going, with his legs, before he goes, falls. Then looks down and then looks at the reader. <laughs> yeah, because he totally does look like he's breaking the fourth wall, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Like he's going, oh, <laughs> shit! <laughs> Very amusing. Lobe flat-out states in this issue that in all the Hulk's rampages no one was ever killed which is what you were alluding to earlier on I think this is important Mm. although I know a number of people for whom this stretched the suspension of disbelief like pants over Kim Kardashian's arse for me it's important the Hulk is not guilty of manslaughter as he then loses his position as a sympathetic character. I know it's asking a lot, but it's no more ridiculous than accepting that a frail sack of skin and bone can become a rampaging green rage monster whenever he's angry. Certain pros are also on record as thinking it's ridiculous that the Hulk has never killed anyone. But the same pro that I'm thinking of thinks secret identities are stupid. (laughs) In reality, he's right. To give him his credit, he's absolutely right. But in comics, the secret identity is part of the appeal and to remove that drains some of the fun from them. I mean, I was talking about this with Michael Bailey the other day. Captain America doesn't have a secret identity anymore. Yeah. So there is no Steve Rogers in Cap's book anymore. It's all Captain America, and it's a little bit boring because of it. Mm. And Mark Wade has managed to jiggle that Daredevil's identity being known because Matt Murdock actually has a job and a career and a life which Steve doesn't really have outside of being Captain America so they've managed to walk that line quite well with Daredevil and we all know how revealing Spider-Man's secret identity turned out I kind of like a Hulk that has killed to some extent though do you? see I don't buy it at all not when it's done by not when it's done on purpose but a Hulk who's accidentally killed someone do you not think though that if the Hulk had killed somebody Bruce Banner would just turn himself in well there is that thing though where the Hulk Bruce Banner is a very guilty conscious kind of character like Peter Parker 
Mm. But if the Hulk had done something like that, like he had killed someone, that gives Bruce more of a reason to be a guilty conscious character. Yeah, but in the the confines of the Marvel Universe, would Bruce Banner be culpable for anything that the Hulk did? That's what Mark Miller did really well with the Ultimates. Mm. Where it was Bruce Banner that was on trial and it was Bruce Banner who was going to be executed for what the Hulk did. Now, yeah, going to eat Freddie Princess Jr.'s head off <laughs> wasn't the best of ways to get to that. No. But once he did, though, it was an interesting exploration. Yeah. I always wonder if it's just my growing up with the TV show. Yeah. Where they established in that show, the creature won't kill because David Banner won't kill. Yeah. And I always think, I just carry that with me. But I think he loses some sympathy if he's killed somebody. But if the Hulk won't do something because Banner won't let him do something, that kind of takes away the whole contrast of both of them and the hatred for each other. I know, but ultimately they are the same person, presumably with the same values. But if the Hulk is Bruce Banner's rage let out, then you can't really do that if Bruce is controlling I I don't so much know... It is controlling it as Bruce isn't a murderer. And yeah, there is a subconscious element, therefore, that the Hulk is not a murderer. So in that case, then, could you say that the Hulk hating Bruce like that is Bruce hating himself? Yeah. yeah. There is an element of self-loathing to it. Yeah. That's what I think is an important part of the character. So the Hulk is essentially Bruce's inner demons. Yeah. He's, 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 he's repressed id given form yeah is what the Hulk is he's the rampaging child that all of us feel like being every now and again he's allowed to express it yeah that's what I'm getting at with him being angry as well but the fact that he hates himself as well oh yeah the self-loathing thing I think is a part of his character yeah uh, Ross's interrogation of Rick Jones is pretty flawless Ross gives Rick just enough rope to hang himself with yeah but I thought was really clever because it is very easy to play General Thunderbolt Ross as this blustering fool. And the fact that in the interrogation with Rick, he doesn't give anything away, and he just leads Rick down the path that he wants him to go, and Rick falls for it. Yeah. I thought it was a really good piece of writing. I also loved his line, they're all punks till they go in the army, which is just so right for this character. Yeah. That's what he would believe. I, I, I thought it was a really good piece of writing from Loeb, that, that he doesn't only show the, that Ross isn't an idiot... Yeah. He actually is quite shrewd, and I thought that was quite clever. Banner hasn't been seen in this story since the events of the Gamma Bomb, and General Ross is about to press charges against Rick for not only trespassing, but accessory to murder. Interestingly, Ross seems to have a very wide latitude in getting things done. He doesn't seem to have a superior that he has to answer to on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. The fact that he has one is mentioned, but by and large he's given carte blanche to do what he wants. Hmm. I loved that the Hulk showed up at the jail and smashes it to bits to rescue Rick. And then when he's distracted by the pretty girl, he just goes, ooh, pretty girl. Always before bros. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's how it works. First appearance in this series for both Hulk Smash and the madder Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets. Mm -hmm. Which is always nice to see. And a great full-page shot of lumbering Iron Man on the last page. Which also dates it. What, that he's lumbering Iron Man? That is this Iron Man, yeah. Well, I've, I've got a thing about that later. A continuity nitpick about that. Not as dramatically rich as previous issues, although the Ross Rick Jones interrogation is very well written. This is largely set up for next issue's Hulk-Iron Man fight, which is fine, I suppose. Solid throughout, although sales Hulk's just not growing on me. 
at all. There, there are moments where I look at it and think, eh, that's all right. Yeah. And then not so much. What did you think? No, I, I liked it. And I also liked the, the shadowy Tony Stark as well. Yeah, you like, don't actually see that it's Tony Stark, do you? Well, not only that, but like in um, Nick Shearer, Tony Stark's a part of this world and he makes this part of the Marvel Universe and mm. he's just the financial weapon backer. Although, he's still a weapons manufacturer factor at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas he wouldn't be, because he stops doing that after he gets back from Vietnam. That's straight away? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, he's not in Vietnam anymore, so... Well, <laughs> so then he, he has to stop being a weapons manufacturer then. Uh, maybe he's just not got to that point yet. Because does it, he, he stops being a weapons manufacturer and a defensive weapons manufacturer for S.H.I.E.L.D., doesn't it? Yeah, but he's still funding S.H.I.E.L.D., and sorting S.H.I.E.L.D. out so there's kind of a contradictory there it's not him though and And he's making technology for S.H.I.E.L.D. and given what S.H.I.E.L.D. do surely he's still technically making weapons then just cause and all (laughs) continuity and nitpicks (laughs) I like the way you do it differently Loba said this issue takes place in the 24 to 48 hours after Bruce is first exposed to the Gamma Bomb and in between Hulk issues 1 and 2 as we have already clarified. However, this issue is clearly his third night of being the Hulk as it's night and he's free unless the Hulk managed to bust out of the nuclear waste bunker and this is the same night. However, Loeb has also said that the series takes place in and around the original six-issue run of The Hulk, and in issue three, cover dated September 1962, Rick lets The Hulk free after being interrogated by Ross, as Ross wants The Hulk to ride a new missile to check its G-forces. That totally happened. You have to jump through a lot of hoops to make these stories work together, even if all the beats are present and correct. Loeb has once again removed the more overt Cold War storylines and thankfully ignores the plot development where Rick gains mental control over the Hulk. Sit down, Hulk. Okay. Thankfully that's gone. So that, my thinking was this was the third night, but we don't get a payoff to the, the cliffhanger in last issue, do we? How has the Hulk got out of... Um, the nuclear waste cave. Well, I kind of thought that until I thought maybe it doesn't matter how he got out, but the what that did to both the Hulk and Rick. Yeah. So, but we don't know, do we? I don't think it matters. I think the only it matters thing, a little bit. I, I, not really. I think the only thing that matters about it is what that ordeal put them both through. What, him waiting outside for him to break through and kill him? Yeah. But also, he goes out of his way to get Rick from the jail. Whereas, there's never really been any indication that they're that close. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, they are because the story says they are. Maybe Hulk was lonely after he killed the <laughs> rabbit. Possibly. So he thought, after the poor rabbit died. Who's that guy who won't get off my back? Chapter 4D is for Dog has yet another cover of a bit of the Hulk. A sliver of Hulk pulling back to punch somebody. Presumably Iron Man. Yeah. Crap, innit? Yeah. Not, not the best cover. Not the best cover on this page. <laughs> when you look at the splash page of Iron Man, which is much better. Iron Man rocks up all ego and in invincible armour and at first makes a pretty good stab at taking the Hulk down. However, as is well known, the madder Hulk gets, 
the stronger Hulk gets, and Iron Man gets the Hulk plenty mad, resulting in the Hulk crushing the armour like a literal tin can. However, when pulling back to punch Iron Man into orbit, the Hulk's flailing arm catches Betty and knocks her into a rock where she bangs her head. Aggrieved to have caused Betty harm, the Hulk swoops her up in his arms and leaps away, leaving Iron Man incapacitated in the dirt. That was short and sweet, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Lovely opening splash of the Hulk reflected in Iron Man's faceplate, reminiscent of the cover to Hulk issue 340. That should have been the cover. Yeah. Maybe a bit more def- definition on the Hulk, but that would have been a much better cover than the one we got. Two-page spread of Iron Man repulsor raying the Hulk so hard it propels him backwards. It's great, but the Hulk still has a mouth that looks like it leads to the negative zone. Hulk, of course, gets his own back by kicking Iron Man across a few continents... Yeah. Which was pretty damn cool, I thought. Uh, in fact, this entire fight scene is pretty damn good. I love Iron Man being kicked across the plains. I love him dragging Hulk into space and Hulk smashing his chest plate to escape and then falling into the sea. Iron Man swoops over the sea and the sea parts as he speeds over it. it was a visual still of the Iron Man movie, wasn't it? Yeah. Where he's flying over the water. And the Hulk pounding on Iron Man despite not ending well for Tony Stark, does demonstrate that Iron Man is a major player in the Marvel Universe. Whilst the sheer bestiality of the creature takes Iron Man by complete surprise, Iron Man's still able to hold his own. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive, given that the Hulk pounds the crap out of him at the end of this story, doesn't it? The double-page splash of him punching him and just said, Hulk smash robot! Yeah. It's brilliant. I love that the whole thing is a robot. It's the robot. That was really good. Very impressive. Loeb takes a big risk having the Hulk accidentally hit Betty. The internet being what it is, I'm surprised we've never seen this panel taken out of context and used as proof the Hulk is a woman beater. Especially seeing as if you just take that panel out of isolation, yeah. you don't know he's backhanding her, do you? It yeah. generally does look like he's just punching her across the face. Maybe maybe it's because they use the word boink rather than, <laughs> I don't know, snap. Yes. Maybe that is a plus. <laughs> uh, Pithiness aside, this is actually a very good callback. The Hulk pressed too hard on the head of the rabbit earlier and it bled. He didn't understand what had happened, only that it was bad. Sale does a lovely callback to that with the Hulk dipping his finger into the blood which is trickling from Betty's head and stirring at it and he seems genuinely concerned that the same fate has befallen her that befell the rabbit. Again, it's really quite sad mm. and very... Oh, I thought it was. Uh, it was a good fighty-fighty issue that we haven't had so far in this series. Iron Man vs. Hulk is a great dynamic especially at this time in the history as neither character knows each other. The art's solid, taking place in the wide open spaces of the American plains, but Sales Hulk, you know, I'm still struggling it's, with it. It's the flying bit that got me. Which flying bit? Right, where he flies him in space, right? Well, he tries to fly him in space, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if he did have his jetpack feet or if it was short-range things. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he, yeah, I'm remembering wrong, or he upgraded it for this new suit. But I'm pretty sure he couldn't fly because that's why he needed his super duper um, roller skates. Maybe that he's he's upgraded this suit for this issue. I'm pretty sure flying was only a red and yellow. Was it? See, I don't remember. But the thing with that is, this armor is really, really heavy. Yeah. The Hulk is really, really heavy. Yes. How does his jetpack propel him? Carry them both. Fast enough so that the uh, has the legs disappear. Maybe he just burned all his excess fuel in an effort to get the Hulk out of there. I don't know. But then, how does... <laughs> 
Iron Man survive when they go up to space? Because, yeah, the Hulk has to breathe, but so does Tony Stark, especially when the, the mouth and the eye holes are just holes in the suit. Yeah, they, what's his name? They don't actually make it to space. No, but what's his plan? He's going to fly up into space and stop the Hulk from breathing. That's great and all, but... Yeah, but was his plan not he was going to fly to the edge of and then hurl the Hulk into space? He better have And then fly back down himself. Well, yeah, and given the state of his armour at this point, it's highly unlikely he's got that strength, but... Yeah. I don't know know that Tony was really thinking this through. He wasn't expecting this to be this difficult. He's thinking this was going to be a cakewalk. Yeah. And the Hulk being able to not only hold his own against him, but pound the living snot out of him, was a big surprise to him. So I don't think he is thinking ahead at this point. I think he's just trying to get rid of him the best way that he can. That's my thinking. Continuity and nitpicks. Not much in this one. Iron Man's appearance is really playing fast and loose with Marvel continuity. The first Hulk-Iron Man disagreement actually took place in Avengers issue 1, and Iron Man first appeared in Tales of Suspense issue 39, which was actually just a month prior to the cancellation of the Hulk's own comic. So that places it three or four months Marvel time ahead of where this is. Mm. The Hulk met the FF before he met Iron Man. Yeah. So maybe bringing the FF in would have worked. However, Loeb does actually address this in the story. Mm-hmm. Did you notice? The Hulk... Sorry, Banner is asked by Samson, are you sure this happened? I don't remember ever appearing about this. Yeah. And Banner says, well, you know, Stark was the chronicler of these early adventures. He kept this covered up. And on the one hand, ooh, conspiracy theory. But on the other... Iron Man's beaten quite badly in this issue. And Tony Stark's a very proud man. Yeah, so you can understand that maybe he swept that under the carpet. History is told by the survivors. Yeah, so that kind of works, doesn't it? Yeah. I I did quite like that excuse. Again, you know, continuity, fast and loose, whatever. Chapter 5 is entitled E is for Elephant. It's an extra special close-up of the Hulk's face and his negative zone gob. (laughs) At least it's kind of black and a bit ready rather than solid yeah, rather white. Than solid white. <laughs> yeah. It's just not doing anything for me. After taking the injured Betty to a secluded hideaway in the desert, the Hulk steals some first aid supplies from a gas station and returns. Betty, initially worried but then angry about the Hulk's treatment of her, wants to leave, but the Hulk wants, no, needs to protect her. When Betty tells Hulk the only thing hurting her, the only thing she needs protection from, is the Hulk himself, the Hulk grows melancholic. The peace, however, is interrupted by the arrival of a Sikorsky helicopter. Which sadly isn't Erwolf, because that would have been cool. No modern artist does small-town Americana better than Tim Sale. He proved it in Superman for All Seasons and has reinforced it time and again with this series, which I don't think we've commented enough on. His sweeping panoramic vistas with big skies and dusty landscapes perfectly capture the area in which the Hulk was born. Here in this opening scene, the Hulk happening upon a gas station in the middle of nowhere in Sales' depiction of it is stunning to look at. I think it's more than fair to say Sales' exquisite yet grounded in reality art, which some have called ugly, more than compensates for the rather slim stories Jeff Loeb provides him with. It helps that this opening scene with the cops finding the Hulk and wetting themselves is a funny beat in an otherwise quite heavy issue. Mm. And it's not like Batman wet himself the first time he went out. <laughs> Thanks I, for that, Kevin. Yeah, I like the panel structure of that page where you see the police car and then you follow the lights. Yeah. 
to the Hulk. Although, is that SO blocked off? For copyright reasons. Yeah. yeah. Very possibly. I don't know. Because again, yeah, on the next page you only see ESS. Yeah. Wouldn't it be Roxon? If they were really paying attention to continuity. It'd I guess. Roxon Isle, wouldn't it? Mm. Uh, Hulk's rudimentary first aid attempts are really quite comical. <laughs> he tries to wrap bandages and stuff around Betty's head and look at it. Yeah. It's terrible. So she obviously takes it all off and does a much better job of it herself. That grin he has when she wakes up. <laughs> it is quite sweet in its own way, isn't it? Never goes out to deliberately hurt her. Uh, the scene between Hulk and Betty in the caves was lifted for the 2008 Incredible Hulk movie. Which had Thor in it. Yeah. This one didn't. No, the 2008 one didn't have Thor in it. If you, if you freeze frame it and you look really, really close, the, uh, Thor is in the lightning. Is, is he really? I think they're, they're, someone's said that if you really think about it, that lightning storm is caused by Thor being sent to Earth. Is it? I think, yeah. Oh, that would actually be really cool. I think that's the excuse they were going with you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. Yeah, we're obviously talking about the good one starring Ed Norton, not the crap one starring Ed Banana. <laughs> I just like the fact that Bruce Banner was played by Eric Banner. Eric Banana. <laughs> Is that not his name? It, 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 well, it's spelt like half a banana. Na 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 Eric. In pyjamas. <laughs> Eric Banner in pyjamas. Samson realises that what Betty's going through is the Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of grief, which isn't the first time Loeb would play with this. Because he mines an entire miniseries out of it after Captain America dies, doesn't he? Yeah. A quiet interlude after the pulse-shattering action of last issue and before the big finale. Elements of Banner must remain in the Hulk's psyche, as his attachment to Betty largely seems to have come from nowhere. But it's a very real human emotion for the Hulk to have, and it makes us relate to him better. It's in work like this where Loeb excels, and whilst it would be easy to point out that this story could have been told in one double-sized annual back in the day, the emotion of the piece is quite affecting. I don't know, this is my favourite chapter of the one. Is it? Just, just because of... Hulk and Betty just chatting. Yeah. It is quite sweet. Loeb excels at his character being... Yeah, he's better at character yeah. than he is at plot in many ways. Well, what is the um, plot to this? Well, I, I wouldn't go that far because Long Halloween is plot over character and it's done very well. Is that not the perfect synergy of both? Uh, Halloween. Because the story does rely on the characters, mm. but both of them are really strong. Whereas Hush, his character work was alright, but the actual plot was Bobbins. Yeah. Whereas in this, his character work's exemplary, and the plot's not really a lot. I, I think Long Halloween is the best the pair of them have ever been, especially together. Right, I think I'll have to read that again, because I don't think, I think I've only ever read it once. Go on! Continuity and nitpicks. <laughs> In the ongoing narrative conversation between Dr. Samson and Dr. Banner, Samson points out a potential continuity issue. Betty was really one of the lesser women in the early Marvel pantheon, and considering that consisted of the Wasp, the Invisible Girl, and Aunt May, that's really saying something. Loeb chooses to write Betty as she became, under other writers, a headstrong, independent woman, rather than mimic the rather insipid characterization of early Hulk stories, and he has Banner in that he chooses to remember her as who she became rather than who she was at this time. Other than that, there's not really much to nitpick in this issue. Nothing like this even remotely happens in the original six issue run, and certainly not in issues one or two. As with the Iron Man story last issue, this takes place exclusively between issues. 
Chapter 6, F is for Father. Sale takes the extreme close-up idea to the ultimate extreme, with it just being a picture of the Hulk's eyeball. That's probably the best of them. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because there's too much that are not enough though for it to be bad like the other ones. <laughs> it's not as boring as the other ones. By definition, there's not enough drawing though for it to be bad. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. General Ross tries to bank the gunship as the Hulk attacks, but the Hulk is far too much for the flimsy bird, and as the craft comes down, the Hulk tears Ross from the cockpit. Hulk screams he just wants to be left alone, whilst Ross proclaims that will never happen. He will hound the creature round perdition's flames before he gives him up. As the army arrive and take aim, Ross orders them to open fire, but Betty intervenes and tells them to stand down. Ross fumes, commanding the men to open fire, his own life be damned. Betty cries no, and the Hulk, confused, says, Hulk will never hurt Betty. Ross hurt Betty. He tosses the general to one side and leaps away, leaving Betty sobbing in the dirt. The next day, Banner returns to the base after being believed to be dead. Ross chews him out, and the cycle of their lives begin. As the hour turns late, Dr. Banner wonders why Betty stayed with him, even after discovering he was the Hulk. Was it because the monster within him was something familiar to her? Banner and Ross. What's the difference, really? Holding Betty's picture, the strain of it all is too much, and Banner's stress becomes form, and a startling metamorphosis occurs. The Hulk leaps away, but on a stone boot in the desert, the Hulk holds the picture of Betty and weeps. I do, sad. Yeah. I do, I, do, I do find it funny how Ross is in the cockpit of the ship. Why would he not be? Oh, yeah. He it's, doesn't want anyone else taking the Hulk down. Yeah. I guess it's it's kind of not quite Moby Dick. but I, I That's do, what they're going for, though, isn't it? I, it's not quite, though, but at least it's not, you are a property of the US States Military Police Military. Which is, yeah, which is what it was in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I might have cocked up that little round, but yeah. No, 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 it's the same... That's the idea in the film, isn't it? He considers him property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the experiment in the film was done on... I mean, technically you could apply that same logic to this. The Hulk was created at the Gamma Bomb test. The Gamma Bomb was being built for the military. I guess, but I, I like how they didn't go with it, because that is just kind of a stupid argument. Is it? I think so, yeah. Maybe that's just Ross rationalising it so that he's not going after him just because it's his daughter. I guess. But, so... The whole property thing, right? Yes. If someone comes to your house with their own loaf of bread and uses <laughs> your toaster to make that toast, it was bread when it went in, but it's toast when it came out of your toaster. Does that toast is that toast your property? No, because it's their bread. Well, so there we go then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, Ross actually does goad the Hulk into killing him, which yeah. is psychologically rich. Ross wants and needs the Hulk to be a monster. So that he has a reason. Yeah, and, and to fit in with his black and white worldview, whereas the Hulk steadfastly refuses to be pigeonholed. Yeah. Like you say, you, they could have gone the route of the film where he would be the property, but Ross is actually willing to die in this issue rather than live with a living manifestation of him being wrong. Both men are just pathologically stubborn. Yeah. Loeb even references this duality in his dialogue between Banner and Samson. Bruce says that Ross is who he is, and Samson replies, Hulk is Hulk. 
Yeah. Which is one of the best... That's what he says earlier, though, as well. Yeah, which is what he says earlier as well. It just ties it all together. It's very cleverly structured, this. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the best pieces of writing Loeb's done, certainly that I've read, as it successfully sums up the theme of the whole story. These two men locked in eternal conflict, yet are, in essence, the same man. Mm. It's incredibly succinct. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good... It's. I'm glad we've covered this after Hush. This is the mouthwash yeah. that's cleansed our palate of the poo sandwich that was Hush. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Which which I, I quite like. I think with this, I guess it's kind of like a poem. There's not much there on the surface, but once you start looking deeper into it... Once you start analysing it, it yeah. there's actually a lot here, and it's it's much more... It's much richer than mm. you, you think that it is. But I, I, I do also like how no one ever knows that Bruce was the Hulk at the end of this when he goes back mm. he doesn't say oh yeah I'm the Hulk no. and no one finds out so yeah I just quite like that uh, Ross calls Banner a milksop what the hell's a milksop don't know sounds like something someone would say in the 50s or the 60s <laughs> <laughs> ostensibly this series has to take place entirely in between pages 11 and 12 of Hulk issue 1 rather than between issues 1 and 2 as low as stated. The final scene in the series, not including the present day framing sequence, has Banner and Rick return to the army base, whereas in the original issues, Banner was just found by the military police in his cabin where he'd just caught Igor. The series just about works if you place it there. Although it does flatly contradict a number of elements, it still allows a number that Loeb ignores to still happen, dated though some of them may be. Loeb also focuses on the more childlike Hulk, who, as we mentioned, was not present in the early stories, but this comfortably allows Loeb to ignore the Hulk threatening to kill Rick Jones in Hulk issue 1 for being the one person that knows that Hulk and the Banner and the Banner and Banner are one and the same. He does. He goes, so, you're the only one who knows that I'm, I'm Bruce Banner, right? Yeah. And then he starts walking towards it, he's going to crush his head. It's quite a scurry scene, to be honest. Of course, the biggest and most important nitpick is that Betty and Bruce were simply not a couple in the early issues of The Hulk, which, to be fair, Loeb just never mentions. Hulk issue 3 implies they only met for the first time on the day of the Gamma Bomb test, although issue 1's a little more ambiguous. Either way, Bruce frequently refers to Betty as Miss Ross throughout the early stories, and she and Bruce have a very tentative relationship, like a couple who've just met and are feeling each other out, seeing if the other feels as they do. By issue 4, Betty is mooning over a picture of Bruce, and it is she that puts together that there must be a connection between Rick, Bruce and the Hulk. Again, arguably, she has more of a relationship with the Hulk at this point than she has with Bruce Banner. And even in Grey, her interactions are more with the Hulk. Betty and Bruce don't share more than one scene together. By issue 5 of the original series, Betty is admitting to herself that she loves Bruce, although she could never tell her father. But by issue 6, this is completely forgotten, and she's declaring to her father that Bruce means a lot to her. Betty actively flirts with Tyrannus in front of Bruce to get a reaction out of him in issue 5, and by the end of issue 6, they are walking each other home arm in arm in the moonlight, with General Ross moaning how his daughter could fall for a milksop like Banner. So presumably, it was at the end of that issue where they became a couple. Tyrannus. Was he a bad guy? He was. <laughs> he may be Tyrannus. Was he a dinosaur? <laughs> <laughs> the pronunciation changes so much. Yeah, he's a dinosaur bad guy. <laughs> okay. Which, which works magnificently. 
Themes of love, loss and duality underscore this tale of the monsters that lurk within the hearts of all men. For both Thunderbolt Ross and Bruce Banner, their respective demons are both the Hulk. In Banner's case, it's a literal manifestation of his inner demons, whereas for Ross, it's a monster for him to chase, something he can conquer and defeat that gives his life meaning. If the Hulk is the whale, as Michael pointed out earlier on, Ross is Captain Ahab, and as with Ahab, the monster will end up destroying him. It's also a love story between a woman and the two men that love her. For Ross, it's the father's almost pathological need to protect his daughter, whilst for Banner, it's this love for Betty that drives him. And these feelings bleed over to the Hulk, even if the Hulk throughout this story cannot articulate exactly what it is he's feeling. These are potent themes and are at the heart of all good Hulk stories, and this is a pretty good Hulk story. It's not, however, Loeb and Sale's finest collaboration. It's easily the lesser of the Three Colours trilogy, not as affecting as Spider-Man Blue or Daredevil Yellow, and not as emotionally satisfying. Whether this is because the Hulk just isn't as interesting a character here, or whether the Bruce-Betty romance isn't as fulfilling as Gwen, Peter, or Karen and Matt, or even if the story is just too damn slight, I can't really say. I just know that personally I didn't find this as enjoyable as a story as the other two are even as much as Superman for all seasons or Batman the Long Halloween it's light years ahead of Hush though yeah what did you think I just, I just didn't get much out of it really did you not no I thought well it was an incredibly quick read yes when, yes, when I woke is. up this morning and found out we were recording today yeah we've changed the day recording this week lovely uh, I, I got it and I read it in an hour yeah it's there's not a lot to it no but it is something like you say when you, you scratch at it, there is a little bit yeah. more than you think there is. So maybe on second reads, there's more. There's a bit though. more that you can examine. Yeah. Okay, photos. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics. I get weeks off. Yeah. I get a couple of weeks off. Michael's taking over and making me read Seven Soldiers, which after, is a Grant Morrison thing. After a year off. Yeah. I'm doing Morrison comics. So I, I get I get time off because you'll have to edit them all. Tighten them all up a bit. Okay. <laughs> don't don't make them as cl- as clumsy as Forever Evil. That was clumsy. Yeah, a little bit. That was what? what? It was a bit too long. That's not my fault. The fact that it took us two hours to record. Hey, I cut ten fifteen minutes out of these shows. Tight, dude. Tight. <laughs> to the point. No tangents. Tighter than a nun's. Dog. Yay! <laughs> so yeah, join us next week. Seven soldiers. I mean, there's there's going to be a gap in the middle of it while we go off to London Super Film and Comic Con or whatever it's called. Yeah. But, you know, Seven Souls, I'm looking forward to it. I, 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 yeah. Four weeks of Grant Morrison, yeah. See you next week, bye bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. 
We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>